There it is. The City Club Forum is in session. Here's an official kind of intro and everything. Good morning, friends. It's Tuesday, March 31st, about 10.45 now, instead of 10.30. And this is a special online City Club Forum in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm Chief Executive at the City Club and a proud member. And about a week ago, we were discussing policy responses to the pandemic with John Corlett of the Center for Community Solutions in Cleveland, Ohio. And today we're looking at the federal policy response that became law at the end of last week. That response is known as the CARES Act. That stands for Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. It's the largest stimulus package out of D.C. ever in our nation's history, providing more than $2 trillion in economic relief to those affected by the COVID-19 pandemic which is to say 100% of America and the globe. Our guests are Amy Hanauer, she's Executive Director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, and Robert Rabin, President and Founder of the Rabin Group. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Amy Hanauer founded and developed Policy Matters from a one-person startup in 2000 to a 14-person operation with offices in Cleveland and Columbus, and she joined the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy earlier this year. Robert Rabin is president and founder of the Rabin Group, which is a national public affairs and strategic communications firm with offices all over the place, including in Cleveland, Ohio. Before starting the Rabin Group, he served in several high-ranking public service positions, including his counsel to Congressman Barney Frank, who once upon a time spoke at the City Club of Cleveland. He was principal deputy assistant attorney general and also assistant attorney general of the Office of Legislative Affairs. And before we get started, I just want to note that these virtual forums are made possible by some great donors, the Center for Community Solutions, Everstream, KeyBank, Nordson, PNC, the St. Luke's Foundation, and the Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland. Additional support is provided by many generous members, sponsors, and donors that you can find on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. These canceled in-person forums, as you can imagine, uh, has meant the loss of tens of thousands of dollars in revenue for our operations. I just need to be kind of clear about that. Their support and your support helps us continue to provide you with conversations of consequence now and on the other side of this crisis. If you have questions, please add them in the chat here in the Zoom meeting. If you're watching on the YouTube stream, you can text your questions to 330-541-5794 or tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them in. Now to the conversation. Amy Hanauer and Robert Raven, first, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Great to have you. Um, I want to start by asking, um, just sort of in general of both of you, and Robert, let's start with you. Um, for this entire, this CARES, this CARES Act stimulus package, to your mind, what is what are like the most significant pieces of this legislation and pieces of the stimulus? Thank you. Thank you all for having me. The, the City Club is storied throughout the country, so I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of it. And I want to shout out to our principal in our office in Cleveland, Jeremy Paris, who has been uh, invaluable. Also a City Club member. Also a City Club member. Um, so thank, thank you all for hosting this. The um, high include the quantity. It's up to a little over $2 trillion, which is close to uh, double what a normal uh, annual appropriation is. And it was done in 10 days. So uh, the remarkableness, the heft, the commitment between that and the Federal Reserve. Um, we have 
arguably maybe the Civil War was more, but an unprecedented release of federal money in a fairly rapid period of time, which means all kinds of complications and all kinds of trouble. The other high points are the, quote, bipartisanship, the, uh, end quote, the uh, overwhelming votes in both chambers and the uh, adoption by the president in a time where we are reputed to be at each other's throats and incapable of legislating, uh, people, people figured it out. We'll talk in the, in the Q&A, there are provisions in the bill uh, which are quite remarkable. And the, but the high point is, as is true in most crises, people figure out a way to do things they said they never could do. And it's inspiring in the midst of all this um, uncertainty and fear that people have, the ability for legislators who are incredibly diverse to come together and formulate packages on things like paid leave uh, or federal support for unemployment compensation um, is quite remarkable. We'll talk more about that later. Indeed. Amy Hanauer, um, turning to you on just overall the most significant parts of the legislation from the point of, from your own point of view and the point of view of the Institute for Taxation Economic Policy. I think somebody needs to unmute Amy Hanauer though. I hope that my team is paying close attention here. If not, while they're doing that, there we go, okay. go ahead. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks so much. It's great to be on this call and um, I'm more educated than I was yesterday because I read a lot yesterday about the um, bill and I'm more educated about porn as well, so that's good. Um, <laughs> I, um, thanks so much and I, yeah, I completely agree with Robert. I think that it was urgent that we get something out that would help the American people and that we get it out very quickly. I may have more criticisms of some aspects of the bill than he does, but I think that it's um, incredibly exciting. And um, the, the only thing that I would like to say is um, about that on a kind of broad basis is, I think that we're not done yet. I think that more relief is gonna be needed and I am looking to what other countries are doing and seeing that they're doing a bit more to shore up the people in their communities and I'd be psyched to talk about some of that as well. Um, and I think if we look to our own history, we see ways that we responded to past crises that I think can provide us with some really good guidance here. So as we get into the Q&A, um, I may have more to say well, about definitely. that. Well, definitely. Well, Amy, while we're with you, I want to talk about the individual, the provisions that are going to affect individual citizens of the United States. It's sort of a, an extraordinary moment, it seems, to to recognize that direct payments to citizens making less than $100,000 a year are on their way through the part of legislation known as the recovery rebate and unemployment compensation as well has, um, has been, unemployment insurance expenditures have gone up as well. Could you talk about those two programs? Sure, absolutely. So um, as Dan said, for a long time I worked in Cleveland at Policy Matters Ohio and I'm now at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. And you can find everything that I'm talking about today at our organization website, um, itep.org, I-T-E-P.org. Um, and so we have, at ITEP, we have a micro simulation model of the entire nation, which enables us to do a lot of analysis of tax plans. So in this bill, um, there are two big components that are really meant to help individuals. One is a $1,200 payment that will go to any individual adult earning under $75,000 a year. And it sort of phases out, as Dan said, at about $100,000 a year. 
um, and there will also be $500 payments for children. Um, 17 and 18 year olds are left out of this provision entirely and people who are dependents of their parents are also left out. So it, it, there's a real gap when it comes to people between the age of about 17 and maybe 23, 24. Um, the other huge um, element of this is a big expansion of our unemployment compensation system. Our unemployment compensation system is really designed to get people back to work because that's normally a value that Americans hold high. Um, and this is a very unusual situation because we are really telling many Americans, please do not go to work, you may not go to work. And so it really requires a different kind of response. Um, so the federal government extended unemployment compensation by four months through this bill. They provided federal funding so that states and their systems don't have to bear all of the costs of this. And they provided a $600 weekly additional payment to anyone who qualifies for unemployment compensation, which is going to be a huge, huge help to people. Um, that's in addition to whatever benefits you otherwise qualify for. And then the final provision is that they extended unemployment compensation to some categories of workers who are not usually el eligible, including gig workers, self-employed workers, um, and, and some other kinds of workers who don't usually uh, qualify. So those are the big, big things that I think are really going to help individual people. Um, there's some more questions that we're going to have about unemployment, but Robert Rabin, I wanted to turn to you to follow up on that question or that, that was sort of raised in Amy's comments that 17 and 18 year old dependents are left out of the recovery rebate uh, program. Do you, you were closer, close on the advocacy around this. Can you speak to why that was the case? No, I don't, I don't know specifically that exclusion. Okay. And find out and get, and get back to your audience. Okay. I do want to underscore what uh, Amy said, for, and, and, and we, we don't know each other, but um, we can share our mutual disappointment uh, about all kinds of things that didn't happen. But I do want to underscore what she just said, the um, inclusion of gig workers uh, in some of these benefits um, is remarkable. And this is true for other things, the federal role in unemployment compensation, the federal requirement on uh, some modest paid and parental leave uh, if your children are sick. We don't know uh, whether this is sort of a blip and we're going to return back to a more restrictionist policy going forward or this is a, a good canary in a coal mine uh, and those of us on the left will be able to expand these provisions as time, as time goes on. On the unemployment uh, piece of this, uh, one of the questions that we collected ahead of time is uh, reads, I don't, I currently don't qualify because my main job is less than 20 hours and less than $269 per week. That job has ended until non-essential stores can reopen. I'm head of a household with one child, dependent on this small income. Will unemployment be extended to part-time workers? We talked about gig workers. Does it also extend to part-timers? The, the unemployment provisions extend to some part-time workers and, and there has been an expansion, but my understanding is that people working under 20 hours a week in Ohio are going to struggle and not get the help that they need from this bill. And I would encourage people go to go to my old employer, policymattersohio.org, for more details on this. I think I, on that particular question on your page, I also pinged the Policy Matters staff, so they don't work for me anymore, but I'm pretty sure they'll still answer. Okay, thank you very much. 
Um, what about the one of the biggest provisions that is uh, that many people have been talking a lot about, at least in the world of nonprofits and uh, and small businesses, are the loans from the Small Business Administration. And in particular, there's a there's a whole set of loans. It's hard to make sense of all of it. And um, the the most uh, extensive one appears to be the Paycheck Protection Program, Robert Rabin. Can you talk about that and put it in the context of the other SBA relief that has come through in the other two, the previous two coronavirus aid packages? Yes, there's multiple um, uh, multiple provisions out of the SBA. It's really uh, the SBA. Some of you are obviously familiar with it and work with it, but they're going to become front and center. Uh, to the nation in the next few months. They, a remarkable amount of federal money flows through that agency without a lot of publicity, and now there's gonna be a lot more. There are three central provisions. Um, paycheck protection, as you just said, there's an emergency, uh, sort of a disaster loan, and then there's an increase um, in lending for those who are already part of the system, either under the uh, 7A or 8D program. I'm gonna encourage people, rather than get into the technical, the sba.gov, right on the front of the website, they do a, an unusually good job um, of explaining the three different programs with click-throughs and an application form uh, is available. So you can find all the specifics of the interlocking programs um, on the website, sba.gov. It is remarkable that the government is able to do a forgivable loan there's, they've, they're putting out several hundred billion dollars to banks with the hope that the banks will leverage that money to several trillion to make forgivable loans to cover payroll, uh, rent, lease, et cetera, et cetera, over a defined period of time. Amy Hanauer, can you speak to that, uh, that Paycheck Protection Program? It does seem extraordinary to me. Last week when we were discussing some of the policy responses with John Corlett, um, we talked. He mentioned the what's happening in Denmark, where the government is basically nationalizing payroll for private employers and in supporting eighty percent of um, of payroll. And the and we both sort of talked. We talked about that and thought oh, that's extraordinary. And then the United States went ahead and, and included a really kind of similar provision, although it's you know limited in duration, but a, but a fairly similar provision in this stimulus package. Um, it does seem like way more generous than we would have anticipated in some respects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think Robert knows a lot more than I do about the SBA provisions, but I will say that like Robert, I feel like the, for, for the amount of time that they had, Congress really rose to several, um, you know, to, to making some choices that are unusual in this country. And you're right, Dan, that in a lot of other places, I've looked more closely at the Canadian plan that was just released this morning and the British plan. There's really a covering of the wages so that people do not have to lose their place of employment and employers do not have to lose their workers. And I think that that's really uh, something we should be thinking about and doing in this country. Some of the things that I really like about the SBA portion of this is that the SBA is a really established way of providing assistance to small businesses. And so I think that some of the concerns I have about um, 
perhaps graft or or things that we may regret giving away later to the large business portion of this bill, um, I think will not be an element in the SBA portion of this bill where I think there are really established policies in place to make sure that the small businesses applying for assistance get that kind of help. One thing that I just wanna say and then I'll stop is, mm -hmm. you know, when folks look at this bill, there is $500 billion for corporations and large businesses in this bill. And I believe it's 300, 49 billion for the SBA portion and then um, a much smaller amount for the individual aid. So it gives you a sense that that there were some aspects of this that kind of proceeded the way you might expect in American public policy um, and some aspects that I think were a bit unusual. Well, your, um, your Senator Sherrod Brown was front and center um, at making pushing for changes um, in the Senate provisions on the oversight and accountability board um, that will inure to the uh, corporate side of the house. Yes. It's a big deal. I'm certain that there'll be further wrangling um, if there's a fourth piece of legislation over the transparency of the decision-making process on both all of the loan programs um, and also Congress's role in that. Um, but people had, obviously, if you're experienced, they had tremendous um, learning, good and bad, from the TARP program to 2008. Um, and many senators and members of, of the House are fighting that battle still. I just wanted to note um, for anybody uh, who's here with us on the Zoom, on the Zoom channel that um, we disabled the chat because there's a I think the folks who tried to disrupt us before were still actively seeking to disrupt conversation. So if you'd like, if you have a question, please um, the 330-541-5794 and uh, we'll work it in. Um, and of course that's available to all of you on YouTube as well, 330-541-5794. Um, I wanna dig into the corporate side of things here, Robert Rabin. Um, the, uh, I don't, I, you know the figures better than I do, but um, there is significant relief for large corporations, um, including, the, uh, including the airlines in particular, and, uh, and many other important, uh, in, sort of economically important, in a sort of macroeconomics kind of, kind of way. Um, can you speak to how that money is going to be spent and, um, and what exactly the oversight will entail? I can speak to what's intended. Okay. We, we have some significant structural problems, which are not, which are not unique, but they're dark. Um, they're, the staffing at the top of a lot of the agencies is um, deficient right now, and I don't mean that as, as a statement about any particular individual. There's a ton of vacancies for a variety of reasons. The um, Senate has focused on judges and between the Trump administration and the Republican majority in the Senate, um, they have been exceptionally slow in nominating and confirming senior people at most of the agencies, including the ones I just said, Treasury, SBA, et cetera. So for those of you who care about public policy and are in the weeds of government, um, in many of, these many of these agencies, we're gonna have a hard time putting rules in place quickly uh, because of staffing deficits. That said, um, the intention is to get money or loans out to um, national security organizations broadly defined, including the transportation and infrastructure industries, although not utilities, interestingly, 
um, as quickly as possible is a combination of cash, loans, and loan guarantees. So some go directly from Treasury um, to corporations that are uh, eligible, and some will be through private lending. BlackRock um, has been tapped to be sort of the master contractor. Big surprise, BlackRock has been tapped uh, to be the master contractor on a lot of the flow of federal money. So for those who don't know, BlackRock is one of the largest institutional investors uh, on, on the planet, really, and um, holds a tremendous amount of sway in financial markets. To be, um, to be fair to them, it is reported that they have capped, Congress capped their fee at $7.5 million for this piece of it. My suspicion is they'll have multiple, multiple engagements with the money. But mm -hmm. I interrupted you. No, 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 that's quite all right. Amy Hanauer, the, did you have a, uh, on the corporate side of things, the, and the, the bailout for, for corporations, um, what, is the, what are the tax implications for these, for these corporations with respect to the taxpayer money that is being funneled to them? Yeah, I mean, so I think that a lot of um, great advocates fought to include more accountability standards, as Robert said, and um, I am hopeful that that will be that that will be helpful in this regard and, and will help limit the um, the amount of sort of unaccountable giveaways that are made uh, as, as was done in TARPS. So there were standards in terms of limiting stock buybacks, in terms of limiting executive compensation. Um, in terms of retaining some of the workforce, and in terms of the degree to which these giveaways could go to Trump businesses, Trump-owned businesses, although not to Kushner-owned businesses, um, his son-in-law, uh, it turns out, was a, a little bit of an oversight. Um, so I think that there will be a little bit more accountability. There also was an oversight board created, which I think will, will provide some accountability. So you know, I think we, we need to keep pushing and keep examining. The other thing that I will say is, that, and when you mentioned airlines, I thought about this in particular because at itap.org, we just did an analysis of airline tax paying. And in the most recent two years, um, six of the seven biggest airlines paid almost nothing in federal income tax. So I find that interesting because I think that we need to think about what does the public sector do for us? And what do we all need the public sector for, right? And corporations really need a strong public sector. And I think that that's becoming really apparent right now. We all need a strong public sector, but um, the corporate community needs it just as much. We need it for public health reasons and for public safety reasons and for air traffic control reasons. And yet um, a lot of corporations try to get away with not paying taxes during times when they're doing well, and then are very quick to come around with their hands outstretched in, in um, tragedies like this. So I think that we, I, my hope is that we emerge from this with a new recognition of our mutual interdependence and of the need for everyone to kind of contribute to our tax code in good times so that when they or others need help, we have the resources to provide that help. No, what, what um, well, I'm sorry, now I'll let you go. What this underscores, and, and we saw it, those of us who've been doing this a while, we saw it after 9-11 after and we saw it in 2008 um, after the, the, the Wall Street negligence brought us into a, a recession. There is a rush to have a federal response and 
there's massive inefficiencies. There's no question in my mind that lots of this money, which will swim around the economy, will be inefficiently and sometimes corruptly spent. I don't think people need to waste any time debating that. It will happen. And people sort of accept that as a cost of doing business and getting money out the door quickly. What you observe, though, is how power reifies itself. We are pluralism. You know, it's a representative democracy. And members do their best. I think most members do their best. And they get inputs from people who are experienced of being advocates, some of whom are registered lobbyists, some of whom aren't. And so when you look through sort of the checklist of money out on the street, you know, you have $504 billion loan fund uh, for companies between 500 and 10,000 employees. There's nothing wrong with that. You have a direct payment for most eligible adults, which is capped at about $99,000, of $1,200. Why $1,200? Why not $12,000? Um, so I won't go through every provision, but sort of how the distribution of an expanded pie happens is strictly a function of power and what we value. And these are not, um, this is not done exogenously. It's done by a handful of people in a handful of rooms over a very concentrated piece of time. So it's extremely important in the long term uh, for you to mix it up and sort of get involved in politics and policy because in, in times like this, it really, it really matters. The, um, there's a, a question, I mean, you, you do, you point to the $1,200 that's the part of the recovery rebate. In addition to that, though, I mean, through the SBA provisions, there are small employers, nonprofits like the City Club of Cleveland, for instance, that will be able to keep people employed through this crisis as a result of, um, as a result of the stimulus package and those SBA loans, um, right. which is not, uh, that's also very, very useful. Um, and so, I mean, there is, there is sort of something for everyone, it seems. And in, in addition to that, the unemployment compensation where the- Well, yeah, that, that's right, that's right. There's an attempt to be something for everyone, that's right. And yeah. it, if I could just jump in for a second here and expand on, on what Robert said. You know, Senator Brown, in addition to fighting for better corporate oversight in this bill, he put for, he um, and Cory Booker of New Jersey and Michael Bennett, of Colorado put forth a plan that would have provided about $8,000 for each individual in the US through the tax code. So it was similar to the $1,200 provision, but it was an initial $2,500 payment followed by, I believe, one to two additional payments that would have come out in the end to about $8,000 per person. And it would have gone a little higher up the income scale, so it wouldn't have started phasing out at $75,000. I say that just to say that you know, within the American imagination, even with our very capitalist approach, another option, you know, other sets of options are possible. I would also say that the House Democrats bill was also quite a bit more generous. And people can go to itep.org to find a comparison of, of all of those um, options. And I will say that I think Senator Brown putting that forth and the House Democrats putting something forth led to the initial benefits that McConnell and the Republican Senate put out being more generous than they otherwise would have. The initial bill that they put out would have omitted and, and excluded many poor families. That was repaired um, and it would have been smaller than what ultimately ended up being allotted. So, you know, I think Robert's exactly right. Like people, 
like all of the people listening to this call, need to be fighting, they need to be in the mix, they need to be um, supporting progressive proposals when they get out there. And, you know, it's, it's never, nothing great that is accomplished by the public sector ever gets accomplished without people like, like those on this call pushing for it. There's always a lot of arguing and I will share with you too that yesterday I had a conversation with a friend of mine who works in finance managing money for uh, very wealthy individuals who is disappointed that at the corporate bailouts because he believes in it more in that it's a form of corporate socialism basically that um, that if uh, people who believe in capitalism truly believed in capitalism they would have allowed some of these airlines to fail and be taken over by more responsible players who weren't engaged in stock buybacks and so forth, which is another point of view on all of this as well. Um, I want to move into some questions from our, um, from our community here. And again, you can text your questions to 330-541-5794. I'll hold that up there again, just for another second here, 330-541-5794. Um, one question we had, uh, we received has to do with what's in asking what's in this for state and local governments, um, who have been, uh, who are very hard hit, somewhat hard hit now are likely to be even more hard hit in the coming year or two as their revenues, as they see revenues shrink. Um, Amy, this is largely a tax problem or a tax issue, or can we start with you on that? Yeah, sure. And I'm, I actually... Let's see, I'm just gonna glance really quickly at something I wrote a few days ago because I've already forgotten what I said in it. Um, uh, but yeah, there, there, were big, there was big aid for state and local governments, $150 billion in aid for state and local government and for tribal relief, which, um, which is gonna be crucial as close observers of Ohio's government know before this bill even went through, um, Governor DeWine had announced 20% across the board cuts to state um, funding for, you know, to all state budgetary funding. And, you know, the reason that that matters, there's always a lot of focus on the aid to individuals, but I think what we all have to remember is that state government is what is providing mental health care, is providing regular health care, is providing education. Um, there are just so many things that state government provides that are essential and that local government provides that are essential at any time and certainly in a crisis like this. And so the last thing we need in the midst of a public health crisis is for us to feel like um, local sanitation services are going to be threatened or local police and firefighting services are going to be threatened. And so I think this is a, you know incredibly important aspect of this bill and certainly almost certainly not enough because state um, revenue is going to crater, um, particularly the states that rely very heavily on the sales tax, but also states that rely heavily on the income tax. Um, across the board, we're going to see a real huge hit to state and local revenue. And so it's essential that we kind of keep an eye on that and continue to provide that aid from the federal government. We know that, um, that the $1,200 uh, payments to taxpayers in the, as part of the recovery rebate program will not be taxable under federal tax law. Will it be taxable under state taxes? I do not know the answer to that. I would bet that if anybody from Policy Matters Ohio is on the call that they would, but I believe that it probably will follow the federal lead on that. And another question specifically about this, Amy, that I wanna to put to you um, says that uh, the legislation earmarks a portion of that money for urban centers, what it calls local governments with populations over 500,000 people. 
will the state of Ohio consider Cuyahoga County to be a local government that's eligible for the increased allocation, or will it consider Cleveland to be beneath that population threshold and not eligible for the increase to urban centers over half a million people? So now I am talking on speculation based on some personal conversations I've had with my former research director, Zach Schiller. I believe that um, Toledo and Youngstown were threatened by this, but that Cleveland is okay, but I am not, Robert may know more. Robert? No, well, I don't. if anybody on the call does know more, please uh, tweet an answer at the City Club and we'll try to, we'll try to work it in uh, through, through this whole system here. Um, another question we received, is there anything in the CARES Act that offers relief to property owners whose tenants are unable to pay rents or would they have to apply for a grant as a small business? Robert? There's not sui generis. Uh, there's not a specific provision for small landlords. Mm -hmm. uh, you might be eligible for the small business um, forgivable loan. Mm -hmm. Go on the website. I think it is. Um, it's. It's not. It's not. No, I don't think so. You don't think so. I, I don't think so. But. But. I would imagine it would have something to do with, how you're, with the corporate structure of the business entity and whether they're paying payroll. There's that. If you have one tenant in your basement, you're generally not a business. Since uh, the people mean it under federal law. If you have a eight-unit apartment, that's different, and you probably have an LLC, and you probably are a small business. Um, the, the majority of the relief is intended to for you to maintain payroll mm -hmm. um, and so the the piece that I'm stumbling over is sort of you generally don't have a payroll when you're a small when you have uh, a couple of units but go on to the sba.gov and see if you're eligible okay and then probably also seek advice from your bank your you know your bank that administers the SBA loans because they may have more uh, more ideas about requirements um, um, I I have just two quick things. One is just, um, I, I heard that you were talking about um, rental, and I will say that <clears throat> one provision in this bill that was really, um, I thought, quite important was that for any landlord who um, is receiving some, is sort of under the government auspices, either Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae, am I getting that right? Um, there yes. uh, is a moratorium on evictions during the initial part of this catastrophe. So I think that that's really important. I also got a text from someone in the county saying that those dispersal decisions have not yet been made and that the county is tracking those. So that's kind of an answer to the question you were asking just before. Um, There's also a, a 90 day forbearance on mortgage payments if you have an FHA or other federal guaranteed loan. But I'm not a housing attorney. I don't know what the forbearance means, but it is a provision of the bill and you can, you can find it. Um, it's continuing with the SBA loan questions for a moment. How is the two and a half times monthly payroll calculated? Does it include money paid to independent contractors such as musicians or just people on payroll? How should we account for tips? This is obviously uh, this is from the owner of the happy dog, a very important uh, civic and cultural and um, drinking institution in on the west side of Cleveland. But um, do you have any any uh, answers on that, Robert? No, and I'm, I'm, we're not, I'm not going to practice tax law mm -hmm. in front of 250 people. I, I'll repeat, and I'm sorry that, that, that I'm repetitive. Mm -hmm. SB.gov has all of the, the regs and guidelines for how the forbearance program works, the paycheck protection works, the disaster loan protection, 
it's a click through, read the rules here, and, and it will answer as best as possible those questions. If they're not on the site, mm -hmm. the answer is nobody knows yet. Mm -hmm. There have to be some wrangling back and forth with SBA and congressional staffers about how to answer specific questions not covered in the legislature. Mm -hmm. Amy, do you have any insight on that? I do not. Okay, here's another one though on the, on the payroll protection program. Um, it seems anecdotally like the requests may substantially outweigh the funds available. What happens then? Absolutely. Nobody knows. It's first come, first serve. It's open till December 30th. Hurry up. And mm -hmm. I, I, I would certainly agree with what Robert said, and I would also say, and then go back to Congress and demand another round of aid, right? I mean, this is an unparalleled economic catastrophe, and it's going to require that people advocate for their communities and for their families and for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, there's a question too that we received. Uh, how do you feel the US federal response package compares with the Canadian economic response package, which is highly specific. It assumes that you are familiar with that package. So are you firstly, and how does it compare, Amy? Um, well, so based on the one article that I read this morning, my understanding is that Great Britain is um, covering 80% of former salaries, C Canada is covering 75% of former salaries, and importantly, as you described with the SBA provisions, which I'm less familiar with, enabling people to stay connected to their employers, which I think is, is really crucial because um, that means that employers don't lose skilled workers and employees don't lose their jobs. And importantly, in the United States, where our health insurance is still linked to our jobs, it may mean less disruption of health insurance, which is going to be a much bigger problem in the United States than in other places. And if you'll just indulge me for sort of one additional second here, I mean, I just, I want us to kind of stop and think about what came out of the Great Depression? Because it seems to me that this may be an economic uh, crisis that is uh, parallel in some ways. And if we think about what came out of the Great Depression, right? We, we came out of, we went into that without an unemployment insurance program, without social security, so that elderly people were the poorest um, population that we had, without a minimum wage, without government um, encouragement to join a union without overtime provisions and when um, without child labor laws. And we came out of the Great Depression with all of those improvements to our, to our structures. Fundamental, enormous changes to the way that American business and American society looked. And I think that we have to take a moment to think about past uh, what, what we've done in past historical moments and how we've responded and think about how we can respond to this historical moment to come out as a better society and a stronger society and one where we're all a little bit better protected. Well, let's pursue that for a moment. moment. No, no, Amy, I think that's, a, that's an important uh, soapbox to remain on for a minute. Um, the, this is a, you know, there is this idea of not wanting to waste a crisis. And, there, and early on in this crisis, I began to think about those kinds of questions. What are the, if we do wind up fundamentally remaking aspects of our society and aspects of our economy, well, what should that look like? Um, and, you know, what would we like to see on the other side of this? Um, as we, you know, and, and the responses to, I mean, I first started thinking about this with regard to climate change because of those reports that came out that, that uh, air pollution in China had been dramatically decreased as the economy slowed down. 
and they were seeing the same in Italy. And I assume we're seeing some of the same here, particularly with air travel slowing down and industry slowing down. Um, but that's just one aspect of how we might remake the economy. So Amy, I'll put it back to you. Like what specifically do you think we should see? And then Robert, I'd like to hear from you on that as well. Yeah, um, well, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, we finally found it as a result of this crisis to provide some federal provisions around um, paid family leave and paid sick days. And I think that those are things that almost every other country manages to deliver as a basic part of their safety net or a basic part of their employment contract that ought to come out of this. But more fundamentally, as you're describing, what always occurs to me is, look, we should be we should be spending a huge amount of our collective resources to prepare ourselves for climate change and to reduce the consequences of climate change. And that, what occurred to me in this crisis, which wasn't one that I'd thought a lot about in advance, is that it, a pandemic wasn't necessarily what I have spent many years thinking about, although others have but it makes it clear that we should be reserving more of our economy for public problems. And then we can deploy those resources in crises in, um, in the ways that they need to be deployed for that particular crisis. So if we had a much larger share of our population employed by the public sector in scientific pursuits, they could have been redeployed from perhaps um, climate change aversion in uh, normal times to trying to help deal with this crisis right now. So it, it just, it makes me think about what share of our population is, is engaged in trying to deal with public problems versus what share is engaged with, um, you know, creating new video games or, um, you know, or, or creating new content or even just trading on markets in ways that don't actually improve our fundamental economy. Robert Rabin. Wow, I co-sign everything she just said. Um, I, I think we're going to have, I don't think, I know we're going to have a significant rethinking of the relationship to, between uh, work and space and how we congregate to do work and how we don't. And I'm going to be defragmenting and liberating to see the innovation that comes from that. Um, I think we're going to see the left and the right is going to come closer and closer about disaggregating benefits from employment. I think if you've got gig people now in a federal benefits program and you've got the right clamoring to slough off health care from employment, you might have some agreement about other ways to do it. And then this is sort of out of right field, but I fear we're going to have an explosion of viruses in prisons. And it's a wrenching, wrenching problem. And I think it will push further the question uh, around which there's some overlap on the left and the right about the role of incarceration and, and whether or not incarceration is the best uh, response to behavior that we're not happy with. That um, brings to mind two points that were raised in two of our recent online forums. Last Friday, we spoke with Armin Budish, the county executive who reported that Cuyahoga County has reduced its jail population by almost 50%, which of course raises the question, if you could do it now, why wasn't it done earlier? Did those people, the 50% actually need to be in jail? It was about roughly a thousand people. And also the other, uh, another piece has to do with the question that came up 
uh, about two weeks ago or so on our Friday forum uh, about the impact on the economy and how really vulnerable our supply chains are, as we're seeing with the shortage of masks, shortage of, um, medical of other medical equipment, specifically ventilators, and also the profit motive and regulatory environment in which hospitals operate, which means that, and have operated for decades, which means that we have likely a shortage of beds um, that we will be, that some communities in particular New York City is already experiencing. Um, I wanna to turn to some other questions uh, from our community here. Has there been any early analysis of potential disparate impact the CARES Act will have along racial lines? Absolutely, uh, well, not analysis, there's been, um advocacy from people who know what they're doing on, uh, and it's not guesswork, it's predictable. Um, number one, I didn't learn until yesterday, and now I'm gonna lead an effort to do something about it. We don't, um, the CDC and the federal government and, and states don't track the virus by gender or race. We've got age and we've got geography. And so we simply don't know uh, we can do geographic mapping and sort of make guesstimates. So just at the, at the very epicenter of what we're talking about, we don't have a race and gender lens on what's going on. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, it's a point I, I made earlier that the people in the room, the people who know how to advocate, the people who, who have been toiling in the fields with elected officials for years about things that they want, have a jump start in getting the assets. And that's what's happened. And you know you don't you don't need to have a degree in equity to see that twelve hundred dollars um, isn't nearly enough for Mrs. Johnson who worked at Popeyes and has three kids who are supposed to be distance learning with what laptop in the Cuyahoga County School, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. Mm -hmm. Um, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. We got massive equity, race, ethnicity. The other spin on that is status, that people are wildly afraid that the public charge aspect of immigration law, um, even for legal permanent residents who are taking advantage of a public benefit or are deportable, are going to kick in. Mm. Amy? Yeah, if I can jump in. Um, well, I will just say that Janice Robinson, my communications director at ITEP, wrote a piece on race in the COVID response that folks can look at on the ITEP.org webpage. But I will also say that, um, you know, one of our biggest lessons from history is the degree to which people of color have been excluded from protections that were advanced that the white community could get to a greater degree. And, you know, I spoke at the city club years ago and I'm very proud of that talk, but in it, I sort of waxed on about how great the um, GI benefits were. And I'm always a little sheepish now when I go back and hear about that because um, since then I have learned the degree to which African-Americans were excluded from the benefits of the GI bill. And um, I didn't, I didn't what that was less widely known seven or eight years ago when I when I gave that talk. And so I think um, 
that it's pretty essential that we think about that in addition to learning the good lessons from our past history, that we learn the bad lessons from our past history. And we, we haven't because um, one of the groups that is excluded from that $1,200 benefit is anybody filing their taxes with an ITIN number, an immigration taxation ID number. I think that stands for ITIN. So um, undocumented workers who pay taxes but file with this special status because they don't have a social security number are excluded from that benefit and they're one of the only groups um, that is excluded. So that's a lesson that we didn't learn and didn't fully engage. Um, I'll also just refer folks to the Kerwin Institute at Ohio State University has also written something about COVID and race that may be worth taking a look at. And that's spelled K-I-R-W-A-N, I believe. Correct. Um, the, uh, Another question from our community about uh, the provisions of the bill, Amy, affecting required minimum distributions and charitable contributions. Um, these are some very specific tax provisions. Required minimum distributions have to do with investment accounts for retirement purposes, and charitable contributions are, of course, what nonprofits rely on. Nonprofits like, say, the City Club of Cleveland, if you're looking for a place to make such a contribution. But Amy, go ahead. Could you explain what's going on there? Yeah, and um, this is this is a part of the bill that I've only just read a little bit about. I know that the New York Times um, resource talked about it, and I'm not sure I fully internalized it, but I know that for individuals making modest contributions, there's, I believe, an additional $500 you can contribute tax-free, and then for those making those more, um, those larger contributions, it, there's a Basically, it's tax-free, so I think up to a million dollars in contributions can now be made without being counted against your taxes. Robert, am I getting that quite right? Maybe while you talk, I can glance at that part of that article. <laughs> I mean, from, what I, from what I understand, it's a, a, I think it's a $300, what's called above-the-line con, um, yes. contribution yes. for taxpayers who usually take a standard deduction. If they make a $300 contribution, they would... Um, the, that additional $300 would be tax deductible. Did I explain that correctly, Robert? I believe so. And right. policy matter and sort of on the equity question, sort of why 300 and not 3,000 or 30,000? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a perfect question. Um, the, another question um, has to do with the specifics for the restaurant and hospitality industries. Cleveland's independent restaurants were thriving prior to the crisis. Most will be decimated and likely never reopen. Uh, Robert, this is not a situation unique to Cleveland, Ohio at all. Um, how does this act assist them in particular, both in the short and long term? Um, it is not a restaurant relief act per se. It is, a, it, is, it is hoping to be a small business relief act with the paycheck protection provisions and the inclusion of independent contractors, gig, gig workers, um, rel relatively expansive definition of employees. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's any question, I'm, I'm not a griot, but I don't think there's any question that we're gonna lose an enormous amount of all business. I was gonna say that earlier that you know, the government certainly at the federal level has much more institutional capacity to interact with and deal with businesses over 50. The vast majority of civil rights laws, the EEOC requirements, the reporting about your employees generally kicks in at 25 or 50. 
there isn't much interrelationship between the federal government and very small businesses. So if you're the bodega with eight employees, want to be your state and your city. Mm -hmm. um, delivering mental health, uh, mental health telehealth services has unique challenges given digital divide experienced by those living in poverty. Children often do not have access to phones or technology. If mental health agencies cannot deliver and bill for these services during this time, how can we keep those agencies whole and maintain this critical workforce will be desperately needed on the other side of this crisis as well. And they're certainly desperately needed right now. Our advocacy efforts underway to seek grant support to keep these kinds of organizations whole. Yeah, Robert may have more to add, but I'll just say, you know, I, I do think like whether it's childcare providers or mental health providers, a lot of the SBA provisions in this bill are available to businesses that we may not think of in the, as businesses. And that's an important way to be helping um, at this time. And, and just this, I, my, my hope that is that some of the positives that may emerge from this is more of an appreciation of the way that we can use remote learning and remote access to services. And I also think um, for friends of mine in the disability rights community, it's a kind of bittersweet moment where all of a sudden a lot of employers are saying, oh, actually you can work from home. We know that we may have previously excluded people with disabilities from many jobs saying that it was not possible to do this job remotely, but, but now it is possible. And I hope that, um, that we come out of this recognizing that physical mobility may not be a barrier to as many jobs as we previously thought it was a barrier to. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit off topic from your question, but I think it's related. But, and oh, and one other thing that I'll say is, um, I think this is also revealing the degree to which internet services are a utility and an essential utility for Americans um, and should be treated as such going forward. We may have lost Dan. I will, I will take a moment to say, no, number one, I need to get off in a second, but um, it's, it's interesting how uh, everything in life is compared to what? Many of us had deep concerns about sort of the, the concentration and size of big tech, the Facebook, Google um, video service, and now that the world has shifted and our children are at home trying to be connected at the same time we're trying to do remote work, how grateful we are with the relatively sophisticated, we're not South Korea, but the relatively sophisticated uh, private sector search functions where we can get accurate information when we think our government isn't giving us accurate information or we can do these kind of calls. It's really, um, it's a remarkable shift in the utility of some of these private sector American industries that we rely on. All right, hey, wow, that was great. Okay, <laughs> so sorry I disappeared there for a second. Um, this is the, the dangers of uh, an entire family relying on Wi-Fi at the same time. Um, so I, I wanted to also ask about um, this division between, the, uh, between these employees, small businesses and larger employers, buckets of zero to 500 employees and 500 to 10,000 employees, and both have materially reduced the benefits, especially res with respect to loan forgiveness for larger employers, regardless of tax status. As a nonprofit with 500 to 600 employees, my organization, which is a safety net provider for healthcare and childcare, among other things, 
will potentially receive less help than a highly profitable 400 employee software company, which seems suboptimal. Was there any attempt to differentiate nonprofits from for-profit employers in the drafting of federal legislation? Absolutely. There were massive brawls with blood on the floor, even with social distancing. Um, it is a left-of-center goal to have included not-for-profits to begin with. Um, and, and you're seeing, you know, sausage-making is not only not pretty, um, but sausage-making done under the gun of, oh, the markets are falling, um, is that it's, it's filled with incredible inconsistencies, inefficiencies, and, you know, you'll pardon my candor, uh, we're just getting started. In, in terms of sort of the, the dysfunction and inefficiencies you're gonna see as this money rolls out. And so, you know, we'll repeat the importance of sort of don't, don't be an armchair pundit, even when it affects you deeply, pick up the phone, have a conversation with your federal elected official, go in and meet with the, well, you can't, but call up the district office, talk to the right policy person, let them know what you're seeing the, the, the 535 members of Congress are not subject matter experts on your business. The only way that they can be informed about the best way to go is if you tell them. And you can do it with your state elected officials, you can do it directly with their employees and staff in their district offices, pick up the phone, email them, let them know what you're seeing. There will be multiple rounds of legislation to modify that which we've seen. And Amy Hanauer, I, I, we're going to close out in just a second here, Robert. And Amy Hanauer, any final thoughts as well? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that, um, you know, I've sort of like to refer to history in some of the things that I was saying. And I think that none of the good things that have happened historically have happened without people fighting for them. And one, you know, I think since Robert started on a pessimist or on an optimistic note and maybe ended with a little bit of pessimism and I, I countered his, his optimism at the beginning and maybe, um, maybe I can balance again, you know, maybe we can balance each other out throughout this. But I think that it's, essential that we take the right lessons from this. And, and some of the good things that I'm seeing out as a result of this are that people with mobility issues may be able to work from home, that we have tremendous creativity among people that's being exhibited, that um, we, do, we can have a moratorium on evictions, that we can maybe reduce in our incarceration rates in response to a crisis, that maybe we can think a little bit differently about some of the things that we've reflexively done in ways that don't necessarily enhance everyone's well-being, and maybe we can um, emerge from this with better public policies that better support us to, to work together and to, to uh, take care of each other in good times and in bad. Excellent. Amy Hanauer is the executive director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Robert Rabin, the president and founder of the Rabin Group. I want to thank you both. If this were the City Club, if we were at, this is still the City Club, but if we were at the City Club, you both would be receiving huge rounds of applause right now. I myself will just wave my hands to thank you. Um, I also want to just thank everybody for participating as well. And apologies for our uh, stutter start there, if you will. Um, before we go, a big shout out to Julia Wong, who is our market, uh, marketing and outreach manager, and today is our last day. We wish her all sorts of luck and success in the future, and we will be in her corner for, uh, for the rest of her career. I want you all to, I want to thank our sponsors who I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, specifically the Center for Community Solutions, EverStream, KeyBank, 
Nordson, PNC, the St. Luke's Foundation, and the Sisters of Charity Foundation, along with many great members and others. We've got a new member during this program itself, so thank you very much for that. Thank you for contributions that came in during this program. As I said before, we are foregoing a little bit of revenue at this time, and we rely on you to make these forums possible. So thanks so much. Please stay close in your heart if you can't stay close in person. We miss you. We appreciate you. And uh, there will be more City Club forums, including one this Friday with Dr. Lisa Damore talking about mental health during the pandemic. That being said, this forum is now adjourned. Thanks, everybody.